On this day, Father, churches mark your son's entry into Jerusalem amid palm branches and praises, cries of joy and celebration. But our passage of scripture today takes us through the, the confetti and the fireworks and the music and the cries to the heart of that generation. And it is a desperate sight. It's a grim view. But amid all the darkness, show us our Savior, the Lord Jesus, bright and glorious, unchanging and true, and the light we need in this darkness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't think you have to have ever watched a single scary movie to know something about how they often go. Uh, Why do I bring that up in this passage? Well, the uh, well-known, beloved uh, scholar, preacher, S. Lewis Johnson, said about verses 43 through 45 that it was a haunted house story. And that stuck with me. And I I thought about that and, and realized that really all this section has elements of a scary story, elements that teach us. So we're going to use that to look at it and see some instructive parallels. First, we're going to encounter the haunting sign in verses 38 through 42, the haunting sign. And what scary story is complete without a sign that says, keep out, danger, crime scene, or something that would warn an intelligent person away, but there'd be no story if people were warned away by that sign. We're going to talk about the haunting sign in verses 38 through 42, the stage being set first by a false request in verse 38. A false and a rather arrogant request. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to to see a sign from you. As if to say, it would please us. It would be our will and our pleasure to see a sign from you. Well, let's just pause and note, in a scary story, there are characteristic tropes, things that you see again and again. I think of three. One fairly constant element is dumb characters. Dumb characters. Characters that don't learn, they don't notice obvious things. They aren't warned by dangerous things. And in the course of the story, they don't grow and they don't change to the point where you just want to shout at the screen or at the book that you're reading. Dumb characters. And secondly, an idiot plot, by which it it comes from the dumb characters. It, it, It depends on the fact that they don't learn and don't ask questions. So they set out on something that is a stupid plot that wouldn't happen if they weren't as dumb as they are. And thirdly, a dumb quest, which is they decide that actually it would be a good idea to spend the night in the graveyard or to go into that haunted house or that campground where that murderer had uh, roamed, or so forth and so on. The idiot, the dumb quest. Dumb characters, idiot plot, dumb quest. Well, do we have those elements here? (laughs) Do we have dumb characters? Need I say more? The same group of people, maybe not the same individuals, but the same set who had just told Jesus that the reason why he could cast out demons was by the power of Satan, asks him for a sign. Why? What had they learned from anything he had done or said so far? He'd given them homework assignments. He talked Bible to them. He performed wonders right in front of them. What had they learned? 
How were they better? No, they were dumb characters. And do we have an idiot plot and a dumb quest? Well, I think we've got the dumbest in history. Men trying to trick the Son of God, trying to outsmart wisdom incarnate, trying to expose God the Word. There is not a dumber quest than that. So here's what they do. They ask for a sign. Spurgeon says the Pharisees changed their manner, but they are in pursuit of the same object. They ask for a sign. A sign would please them, they say. A sign. You mean maybe like, oh, I don't know, raising the dead, stopping a storm, giving sight to the blind, stopping a flow of blood immediately, and on and on, cleansing a leper with a touch, cleansing a leper with a word, something like that? Yes, but you see, he's been doing these things all along, and he had just done one, healing a deaf and mute man who was possessed. And they said he did that by the power of Beelzebul. Well, maybe they have in mind a sign from heaven. In chapter 16, verse 1, they use almost the exact same words, but they want a sign from heaven. Maybe their thought is all these others were on a small scale. Now we want something that more people can see. But what would be the point of that? If, if the smaller unquestioned miracles did not move them towards God, what would a larger th- uh, example of the same thing do to them? When they hadn't changed, we'd be back in a your dog can't swim situation, if you remember the joke from a few weeks back. So they want him to do a sign. You know, um, are dumb characters like that still around? There are people like that still today, and you hear them saying, well, give me evidence. You want me to be a Christian? Will you give me evidence? You give me, it's got to be extraordinary evidence. You give me evidence to prove God and the Christian faith. But what they mean by that is give me the sort of evidence that I would approve and that I would accept. And what they mean by that is starting with the assumption that I am the judge of all things and that it has to pass my standards. And my standards change with every new bit of evidence so that the evidence isn't really convincing because the problem is the person doesn't want to believe. It's not the lack of evidence surrounded by a creation that shouts creator, and they want evidence. So sometimes I will say to a person like that, well, you've, you've got this, this question that you say is troubling you, and I've answered 45 already. So if I answer this 46th question, then will you bow your knee and trust Christ as Lord? But of course, that's never the case, because the problem is not the lack of evidence. And the problem in their case was not the lack of evidence. The problem was what Jesus says it was. It was their heart. So we come from a false request, secondly, to the fierce response that Jesus gives. And you'll notice he does not respond in a gentle, congenial way uh, as to colleagues. And he he isn't nuanced and nice. He's very, very direct. This is his answer. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given to it, except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was in the belly of the giant fish three days and three nights, thus shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And we see here first that Jesus nails the source where this question is coming from. The source is from a wicked and adulterous generation. It doesn't come from a heart 
that is humble and seeking assurance, seeking greater knowledge and understanding. Uh, but it comes from a kind of generation, not just these guys, but that of which they are a sample. A kind of generation that is, first of all, he says, wicked, though they imagine themselves to be on the side of God. But they have domesticated God and reduced him to a system of formulas and boxes to check that they controlled and they had no relation with the living God. As Jesus said, you go to scripture and you learn God wants mercy and not sacrifice, but that did not interest them at all. And so they were a wicked generation and they were an adulterous generation. This is a a note taken from the Old Testament. You see in a number of places where God says that the nation of Israel is adulterous because they'd been betrothed to Yahweh as their husband. He was to be their one and only God, and they strayed from him. They strayed to a host, a constellation, if you will, of idols and worshiped them, and so he called them adulterers. They broke their bond. They broke their relationship with God, and he says that of them. It's quite a slap in the face. They would say, we don't serve idols. Ah, but they do. They serve a God of their own domestication and their own design. And the the proof, as he says in the Gospel of John, is the ultimate proof is that when God sends his son, they end up killing him. So they're not worshiping God. If they're not worshiping God, then they're idolaters. If they're idolaters, then they are adulterers. He says they're a wicked and adulterous generation. So I, I just pause to point again, uh, sing a song I sing often, which is people today, whether politics or, or the spiritual realm, want to blame bad leadership. And indeed, there's plenty of blame to go around. There are terrible leaders in politics. There's terrible leaders in uh, professed Christianity. But I say you've, you've got to not stop there. How did they get to be leaders? Did they come in in a tank or in a jet and take it by force? No, they were given that spotlight by crowds and crowds, by a generation of people looking for that kind of ear tickler. You see? And so here as well, the problem is not just these guys, it's the generation. What had he just done, the Lord Jesus? He'd, given, he'd, he'd lamented and proclaimed woe on cities that had not responded to their preaching. Not just the leaders, but the cities as well. So he nails the source. The source is the wicked, adulterous generation. And as he had just said in the verses previous, the wicked heart that motivates them. Secondly, Jesus names his sign. They want a sign. Well, there's going to be one sign, and it's not going to be the sort of sign they pick. God, if you will, is going to pick the sign. And the sign will be a sign for the generation, this unbelieving, adulterous generation. And what is that sign? It's Jonah the prophet. He says, A sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. That is to say, not a sign Jonah gave, but the sign is Jonah. He is the sign that he was swallowed up by the... uh, You could translate that as I did, a huge fish or a a huge sea creature. It's not necessarily a whale. It's a a, a particular beast that that, uh, Jonah says God prepared. Uh, It may have been the only of its kind ever. There's no great point in looking to see what kind of whale it was. Uh, Jonah expressly says, God appointed this. So it may have been a a one-of-a-kind creature just for that uh, purpose. But it was a massive sea creature. And Jonah was swallowed up and spent three days and three nights. 
And there's an analogy there. He says, as uh, Jonah was in the belly of the giant fish three days and three nights, thus shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The analogy is, Jonah was off the scene for three days and three nights by being swallowed. (laughs) And so Jesus would be off the scene for three days and three nights by being killed. But in both cases, Jonah was barfed out by the creature, and he went on and preached and completed his ministry. And in his case, death could not hold the Lord Jesus. And he strode out from the tomb and will complete his ministry. So as the Son of Man, Daniel 7.14 remembers the source of that phrase, the Son of Man, he will come back. Uh, Both return and both preach. Now, just as we pass it, it says three days and three nights. I just point out to you that in the way people spoke at that time, any portion of a day was a day and a night. They just rounded up, if you will. So Jesus was, in their reckoning, dead three days and three nights, though he died Friday afternoon and rose Sunday morning. The common way of describing that would be to say that was three days and three nights, as happened with Jonah. So that's the analogy What is the message here? What is Jesus saying when he says a sign will not be given to this wicked generation except the sign of Jonah? And that sign is analogous to the Son of Man. What is he saying? Well, he's not saying that there won't be any more miracles at all. He does continue to work miracles of his choosing. But they're miracles in specific situations, and they're not on demand, not if Herod wants one, not if someone else demands one, but they're of Jesus' choosing. But to the generation, the sign that will be given to the generation is the sign of his death and resurrection. That's the sign. So they want a sign. There's going to be a sign, but that sign will come at their condemnation because the reason he will be killed is because the nation rejected him because the nation held a mock trial and handed him over to the Gentile authority and cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate had no interest in Jesus, whatever, except for the machinations of the Jews. And that's why he ends up being crucified on a Roman cross. And then he's raised from the dead by God the Father. And that's the sign. But that same sign will condemn these people and their like. Let us see then the fierce response leads to a fearful warning. Verses 41 and 42. Ninevite men will stand up in the judgment with this generation. And notice, by the way, the repeated generation. I'm going to get back to that. Rise in the judgment, stand up in the judgment with this generation, and they will condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. And yet, look, something more than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise in the judgment with this generation, and she will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And yet, look, something more than Solomon is here. Well, he alludes to two historical examples as condemning them in their unbelief. What's the first? The Ninevites, the Assyrians who repented at Jonah's preaching. You'll remember Jonah was sent to preach to them, and he didn't want to because his great fear was that that he'd have a a successful preaching ministry. I don't know any pastor who much sympathizes with him. We'd all long to have his ministry as successful as he had. He was the worst preacher ever, and he had the greatest harvest ever from his preaching. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want them to be spared. That's why he ran away. And yet, 
and yet he was swallowed by this great fish and barfed back out and goes and does indeed preach, and they do indeed repent. And they will stand up and they will condemn Jesus' generation because he preached to them. He was far greater than Jonah, and they did not repent. And likewise, the the queen of Sheba, which is to say Yemen as we know it, made possibly a 1,200-mile journey to see Solomon because she'd heard of his wisdom. And she listened to his wisdom and marveled at his wisdom. And she will rise and condemn that generation because she came and she listened. She heard that they wouldn't do any of those things. Hmm. So the men of Nineveh and the queen of Sheba, what do they have in common? Gentiles. Gentiles. Another slap in the face. He came to his own and his own, what? Received him not. They were the people of God. They were children of Abraham. And they crucify God's son. But these Gentiles repent when they're preached to. These Gentiles come to hear the wisdom. And Jesus says in both cases, he's greater. He's greater than Solomon. Yes, he is in every way greater than Solomon. Solomon was a great wise king. And then he fell away from God in the most atrocious manner and worshipped idols. And so likewise, Jonah, he's greater than Jonah. Well, Jonah didn't even want to preach. He didn't want to see them redeemed. And he, the Son of God, came to save sinners. And he, the Son of God, in him there was no sin. And the evil one had no purchase in him because he was spotless and pure. Yes, he was greater than Solomon. He was greater than Jonah. He'd earlier said he was greater than the temple, the symbol of the very presence of God. He was greater than all these things. And yet these people did not repent. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And they tried to condemn him by what he did on the Sabbath. Yes, with every word they condemned themselves. More than Jonah, more than Solomon, more than the temple, and greater than the Sabbath. And yet they will not repent. Well, what are some of the lessons we can take from this? Here's one just as a matter of Bible study. You will find, if you read much, that that the more sophisticated they are, the more likely it is for scholars, even if they say they're Bible believers, to say that, well, the the book of Jonah may not be historical. It, It probably is something like a parable. It probably is just a story that's meant to instruct us. It's, it's meant to teach us moral and spiritual lessons. But you know, these things didn't really happen. He wasn't really swallowed by a, a great fish or a whale. And yet here, what does Jesus say? He alludes to Jonah, who, who he alludes to as being just as historical as Solomon, just as historical as the Queen of Sheba. But notice what he says also in verse 41. Ninevite men will stand up in the judgment with this generation and they'll condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah. So he's saying these people in that book of Jonah heard his preaching and they repented and they will stand up and they will condemn this generation. Now, was his generation literal and actual? Were they people who really lived? Yes, they were. So who's going to stand up and condemn them? Uh, a fictional character? That, that would be like saying, you know, the orcs of Mordor will rise up and condemn you. Or the students of Hogwarts will condemn you because, you know, you didn't repent. They repented at Harry Potter's leadership. And, no, but these are fictional. They won't rise up and condemn anybody. You know why not? Because they never existed. But when he says the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn because they repented at Jonah's preaching, how can that happen? 
because they really existed, and there was a real Jonah, and he really preached, and they really repented, because the book of Jonah is history. We learn that, and that settles it from what Jesus says. Now, let's talk about the real problem here. This explains their problem. The problem was not that they lacked evidence. They had prophecy, they had Jesus' life, they had his teaching, they had boatloads of signs. The trouble was their heart. A heart that doesn't want to believe doesn't believe. And this is the biblical doctrine of free will, not the the pagan doctrine that some Christians have adopted and and live and die by. The, The biblical doctrine of free will is that the will is free to choose what the heart wants. And the issue, though, is what is the heart? What does Jesus say back in verse 24? Offspring of vipers, how are you able to speak good things being wicked? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The wicked man out of his wicked treasure brings out wicked things. And here he calls them a wicked generation. So yes, they they freely choose what their heart wants. And what their heart wants is not to believe, not to repent, not to humble itself before God. And so with a heart like that, there is no amount of evidence that would change the heart because it's as if the person is standing by a bottomless pit of, of self-rule and of rebellion, and every bit of evidence you give him, he just tosses into that hole. He's a very, very interesting and tosses into that hole. And you absolutely prove to him that the record of Jesus' resurrection is actual and historical, and he says, well, what a wonderful world this is, and tosses into his hole. It does nothing because the problem is not his lack of evidence. The problem is the heart, and only the Holy Spirit can change the heart. Only God can change the heart so that then the will freely chooses Jesus Christ. So the problem is that they are wicked, as Jesus says, and the problem is that they are adulterous. They were the bride of Yahweh, but they rejected his son, and yet pagan Gentiles had repented and believed. And, spoiler alert, pagan Gentiles would repent and believe again. In a couple of chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, And the Great Commission at the end, go to all the nations and the book of Acts and the rest of history to today. The gospel has gone out to non-Jews and been welcomed while the nation of Israel rejected it. And still see as being definitional of being a Jew that you don't believe in Jesus. So what do we see then? We see dumb characters on a dumb quest ignoring the signs. And they created an idiot plot for themselves, and it will not end well. This will not be a scary story with a happy ending for them. All of which brings us to the haunted house story in verses 43 to 45. The haunted house story. And I've got to say that reading Matthew for years and years, I did not see the connection here, but I believe I do now. So thanks so much for letting me preach through this book so that I could actually understand it finally after all these years. But the haunted house story has a puzzling start in verse 43 that really raises some questions. Whenever the unclean spirit goes out from the man, it goes through waterless places seeking rest, and yet it does not find it. Well, let me ask a couple of questions. Is this a parable or is this something that actually happens? Now, uh, older commentators usually speak of it as something that actually happens. More recent ones treat it as a parable. It could be a parable. The language fits. It could be a parable. However, I don't think it is because, for one thing, it's not called a parable. 
And he doesn't say, as he often but not always says, that the kingdom of heaven is like this or anything like that. Um, he says this generation is, is going to come to a similar end. So again, could possibly be a parable. But my biggest reason for thinking it's not a parable is that when we get to the next chapter, chapter 13, and he starts teaching in parables, the disciples are all surprised. And they ask him, why are you teaching in parables? So it doesn't look like it's something that they, they have really been accustomed to him doing before. So I take this more as being Jesus saying that this sometimes happens. This is the sort of thing that sometimes happens. And that brings us to the next question, was, which is, is this an exorcism? Is this demon going out of the man because it's been cast out of the man, or simply because for whatever reason it decides to leave him? And again, I'm forced to say it. It could be either way. The language is ambiguous. It allows for either. It isn't clear. But I think that he was not exorcised. I think he just left. Why do I think that? Well, the word Jesus uses in verse 43, whenever the unclean spirit goes out from the man, could be that he goes out because he was exorcised. But if so, it's an, um, it's an ambiguous word to use. There is another word that is used in Matthew, ekbalo, which would have made it unambiguous if Jesus had said, whenever the unclean spirit is cast out of the man. But he doesn't say that. He just says he goes out of the man. But even more is he calls the man what? My house. My house. So I would say that he exited, but he wasn't expelled. He thinks he still has ownership. He believed, well, it turns out he does still have ownership. He's able to walk out. He's able to walk back in. As uh, Spurgeon says, he goes out, but he takes the keys with him. <laughs> and when he wants back in, he's able to get right back in. So I don't think he was exercised. Um, I think Jesus is just painting a picture of a demon that just perhaps wrecks the man because the sequel is that he's swept up and tidied. So he just destroys the man to where he's not fun anymore. The demon being restless leaves him and goes looking for someplace better, but he doesn't find one, and so he goes back. So I think that's what we're talking about here. For whatever reason, this demon tires of this man. And what do we learn about? Let's talk about some of the lessons here. What do we learn about demons? How do you commonly see demons portrayed in popular literature? They're impish, puckish, fun-loving, happy jokesters, aren't they? They're, they're mischievous. Oh, yes, they're malevolent. They're evil, but they're happy. They, they love their work. They're always smiling. It's, it's the holy people are always frowning, but they're always smiling because they're happy. But that is not the picture we see in Scripture. This is a restless creature. He's got a human being. Remember, the legion is begging to be cast into something when Jesus is going to drive them out of this, these, uh, these men, even if it's pigs. But this guy's got a man. And yet, and he's just, you know, he's, he can't be content. He's restless. I, I, did I make that up? Jesus says he goes out seeking rest and yet does not find it. Now, there's an interesting word because that word rest, anapausis, is the same word Jesus used at the end of chapter 11 when he said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you. But the demon can't find rest. Why not? Because he's seen the face of God and has spat at it and turn from him for all time. And there is no rest outside of God, not even for a demon. And he will not end up with rest. He will end up in the lake of fire with the devil 
and all who go with him in unbelief. So, no, this is not a happy, puckish, mischievous character. This is a miserable, endlessly hungry, endlessly restless character. Like a roaring lion, Peter says, right? Prowling about looking for someone to gobble up. Never at rest. Always roaming, restless, hungry. And a second thing that we notice is they break everything they get. He leaves the man, who evidently leaves him a mess, because the text says when he returns, he's swept and he's tidied and he's vacant. So he comes back, he sees this tidy house, and what's his first thought? I'll go get seven of my friends, and we'll completely ruin this house. So they break, they don't build, they they don't construct, they don't fix, they don't improve, they destroy. Why? Because they're utterly restless. Why? Because they're utterly miserable. And that's the consequence of leaving God. So he's left this man. He's restless. He can literally find no rest uh, because the only place where rest can be found, he's said goodbye to for all time. So that is the puzzling start. Now let's talk about the horrifying sequel. Verses 44 through 45a. Then it says, To my house shall I return whence I came out. And when it comes, it finds the house vacant, swept, and tidied. Then it goes and takes with itself seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And it enters and makes its home there. And the last times of that man become worse than the first. First we see decision. Decision. Then it says, to my house shall I return whence I came out. Uh, He has quitted occupancy, as Spurgeon says, but has not given up ownership. My house, he calls it. And some some commentators say that that's arrogant of him. I don't necessarily think so because he goes right out. And then what does he do? He goes right back in. Why? Well, because there's none to bar his way. Hmm. Is there a lesson in that? I think of what Jesus says in at least one other or exorcism in Mark 9.25. Let me read that to you. Mark 9.25. Jesus, in exorcising a, an unclean spirit, rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. So that spirit cast out would not return to its house or think of it as being its house. Because why? Because Jesus barred his return. Because Jesus forbade his return. Now, this is going somewhere. Does this make you think of something Jesus had just said to the Pharisees? It does me now, after so many years of reading Matthew. Remember what he says in verse 29. When they say, oh, this is just Beelzebul casting out demons. And Jesus says, If he's casting out demons, his kingdom is divided. And then what does he say? Verse 29, how is someone able to enter the house of the strong man and to seize his vessels unless first he binds the strong man? And then he will completely seize his house. He who's not with me is against me, and he who does not gather together with me scatters. So he's saying that the reason why he's able to cast demons out is why? Because he's stronger than Satan. He's the stronger man. Yes, Satan is stronger than the man, 
The demon in the man is stronger than the man, but who's stronger than the demon? Jesus is. And so he can come and bind the strong man and cast him out. But what do we see here? Well, what don't we see here? We don't see a stronger man barring the demon's return. We don't see a stronger man binding him and casting him out. We don't see a stronger man standing in the doorway barring his return. And so the demon can still think of the man as my house and can still believe that if he wants back in, he can go back in. And indeed he does. That's his decision. I will go back to my house, he says. And so he does. Then the discovery, number two, the discovery. And what does he discover when he goes back to his house? He finds the door wide open. He finds the house, finds the house swept and tidied. And what else? Vacant, unoccupied, put to no use, idle. Vacancy, in other words. Were there a sign on it, the sign would say vacancy. And so he comes in. Now, isn't that interesting? What kind of spirit does Jesus say he is? What kind of spirit? Unclean spirit. Yet he does like a tidy house. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? Why does he like a tidy house? Or the same way a toddler likes a stack of of, uh, bricks. Why does a toddler like a stack of bricks? Because it's fun to knock over. Now, I am not comparing toddlers to demons, but I am saying that I am saying that the that the uh, the impulse is similar. Only in this case, it's malevolent. Uh, toddlers aren't much for building, but demons are much for destroying. And so he likes a nice, tidy house to ruin. And by the way, this is a satanic thing. Why? Well, because Satan hates God, and he hates everything that reminds him of God. And you know somebody in a, in a relationship that comes to a bad end. What does that girl, what does that man maybe do to the pictures of this person who's, who's spurned him or, or been unfaithful? And what do you do to those pictures? You tear them up. You throw them away. You don't keep them where you can see them. And so it is with Satan. Every memory of God, everything that looks like God... He wants to, well, not just destroy, but corrupt, make into a, an abomination. And so it is here. The man's tidied up his life. He's reformed himself. He's perhaps stopped drinking so much. He's perhaps stopped going to body shows. He's perhaps stopped sleeping around or stopped stealing. He's cleaned his life up. And Satan comes and sees, oh, that's tasty. That's tasty. I'm going to get some friends, this unclean spirit says. And we are going to trash this big tidy house with all the glass to break and all the walls to cave in. That's his discovery. And the third that we see is domination. This poor man's self-reformation has only made him fit for greater misery. All this cleanliness just makes the unclean spirit want to invite seven rowdy friends, worse friends than he is. And that's something to think about, that there are, there are better and worse demons. They're all bad. I shouldn't have said better. There are worse and worser <laughs> demons. There are degrees of horribleness. And he goes and finds seven more horrible than he. And so, and so this neatened man becomes a beaten man as the spirit returns and takes ownership and shatters him 
so he can sweep him into Satan's furnace. Well, that is a scary story. It's an interesting story, but it's a scary story. What does it have to do with anything? Why did Jesus tell it here? Let her see the appalling signification. Little play on words there, signification. It's a sign. It signifies something and something appalling. What does Jesus say? Thus will it also be for this wicked generation. Ah, in years past, I did not see what that had to do with anything. What does it have to do with the generation? And now you probably are right there already. What does it have to do with the generation? Well, I told you to notice the word generation. Um, in Matthew's structure, remember, there are, Matthew has parts that form a mirror parallelism. And so A matches mirror part A prime and B, B prime. Well, in both of these parts that we're in here, the word generation occurs a number of times. It's a theme in both of the parts. In chapters 11 and 12, the word generation occurs five times. It's something of a, of a theme here, this generation. And Jesus says, to what shall I liken this generation? And, and so forth and so on. So the, the generation is a generation that has rejected Christ. It's a generation that has blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And so remember Matthew's great purpose. What, what do we say Matthew wrote his gospel for? Well, first of all, to show that Jesus is the Messiah and to show Jesus. And secondly, to carry out, carry out Jesus' command to teach his words to all people to hold and do them. But remember, what was the third purpose? to explain why Israel was in unbelief. Why were the people of God, who should have been the first to trust in Jesus as Messiah, why were they as a nation still in unbelief? Well, this is Matthew explaining that. The reason why is because of that generation. Well, what was wrong with that generation? Well, Jesus just told us it was a wicked generation. It was an adulterous generation. It was a generation that committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And look at right here. It is a forsaken, Satan-dominated generation. Why? Well, what had Jesus just said? He who is not for me is what? Against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Were they for him? Well, no, they were not for him. They were against him. So, what was there to protect them from being overrun by the forces of Satan and Satan's delusions? Absolutely nothing. Because they had rejected the stronger man. Because they had blasphemed the spirit who attested to the stronger man's strength. And so that left that generation wide open to satanic domination. And so rabbinic teaching and the whole structure of what we call Judaism has arisen in apostasy in rebellion against God, not, not out of love for God, not the God of Scripture, because they rejected the Son of the God of Scripture. So, that generation. Notice also the lesson of the man. The man teaches a lesson about that generation, but not just them. But what, what can you say about this man? Well, you, you can certainly say he was reformed. Don't you have to say that? I don't mean he was a five-point Calvinist, but I mean that he... He had reformed his life, hadn't he? Of course he had. He was, he was swept clean and he was tidied. He was adorned. But he wasn't regenerated. He wasn't born again. You could not say of him 
greater is he who is in him than he who is in the world. Why not? Because there's nobody in him. The demon comes back and finds the house vacant. There is no resistance, not even a token resistance. So, lacking a stronger man to keep out the devil, the man is wide open, and though reformed, not regenerate, he becomes, uh, he becomes rapaciously captured by the demon. And so the pig, though it's been washed, returns to the mire. And the dog, though it is vomited, licks the vomit back up. And that's what happens to this man. I wish I could make something clever out of this, but it's just clumsy. Um, so what application does that have? Well, it has an application with Israel, doesn't it? Fairly obviously. Israel had been idolatrous, hadn't it? Did that end? Well, it, it formally ended with the captivity. They were sent to, to captivity as idolaters, and they came back monotheistic. And so idolatry didn't, became, didn't become a problem to them. And also Sabbath breaking was a real problem in Old Testament history. And they came back with buckets and buckets of rules about, about the Sabbath. So yeah, they had reformed to be sure in certain notable ways, but that, all that made them was moral, religious hypocrites. Isn't that what Jesus said? Isn't that what Jesus exposed? Isn't that the mask he ripped off in the Sermon on the Mount, saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Because their righteousness was a formal righteousness of appearance and of box checking, not of a converted, born-again heart. And so that was their religion. And reformed, yes. Regenerate, no. And even their monotheism became an idolatrous monotheism as they made God into what he was not in Scripture. They made him into a sonless father, had no eternal son who was his equal as the God of the Old Testament does. So, yes, there's an application to Israel. Is there another application? Well, what about two individuals? What about to people who, who ruin their lives in drugs or immorality or drunkenness or crime, but they clean up, they, they go to a program, they go to 12 steps, seven steps, I don't care, and they stop that evil habit and they become better people and that makes them proud and that makes them self-sufficient and it doesn't make them born again, it doesn't make them children of God. They are still in the kingdom of darkness. They are moral, they're righteous, they're damned. This is the lesson of this man here, reformed but unregenerate. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And self-reformation does not regenerate. It does not save. That's the lesson of this man. So the moral is... What is needed is not for Jesus to give them another sign. What is needed is for them to repent and to gather with Jesus. They won't for one reason, because they're wicked and adulterous, and they have an evil heart. And because they won't, they will be given over to worse sin. And that tells you how God regards apostate religion today. 
God has been so patient. Jesus has been so persistent in his ministry, but there is an expiration date, and they're reaching it. And this is the sad consequence. That was a scary tale, wasn't it? I think that's a very scary tale. Oh, the part about demons and the man? Well, yes, that part was very, very scary. But the larger picture is scarier still because there are too many people today who are in a horror movie of their own. And like people in horror movies, they don't realize what kind of horror movie they're in. They don't realize that they're the dumb characters who don't learn, don't listen, don't change, who keep doing the same thing over and over again with the same results. And they're in an idiot plot on a dumb quest, the quest to rebel against God and make it turn out well. That is a dumb request. That that dumb quest, that is an idiot plot. God is so patient though, he sends his word to us again and again. He forbears his judgment, but there is an expiration date, as Jesus says, and as we see. And the only safe place in the universe is to be with Jesus and in Jesus. We want the stronger man standing guard at the door. We want to be under his protection. We want to be behind him. And Jesus still calls. The call that the demon does not hear anymore, we still hear. He does not call to demons and say, come to me and rest. But to us today, he says, All you who labor and are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am humble and gentle in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls. Let us pray. Our God, our Father, we thank you so much for these words of truth and this depiction of the gritty reality of things. We pray that we will be instructed by it, and I do pray. Once again, for anyone who's come in knowing he doesn't know Christ or imagining falsely that he does, that the Spirit of God will find that heart. Bring your words home with power. Draw that person to Jesus to find the only real rest and only real salvation that is to be found. And for us who are in him, we thank you so much that we are in him, that he's our refuge, he's our tower, he's our savior, he's our deliverer, he is our stronger man. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.